Can you tell I put my thinking cap on over the weekend? <laughs> so there have been 140 episodes. <laughs> oh, we, just, we just had to play it, though. What a great song. Do you remember the first time you ever heard that? Because I do. No, they no, say if you can remember things from the 70s, you weren't really there. Yeah, okay. Well, it wasn't the 70s for me. It was the 80s, so maybe you're showing your age. I don't know. I'm going to say, though, it's funny. There's a, a learning for me out of that. I remember uh, at the time I was a roadie when I first came across Pink Floyd, mm. working for a roadie in Queensland for... And, in fact, I've done some roadie jobs for some bands now that are very big time, but I was just a lowly paid scum of the earth roadie. Mm. And I remember a, a lady who was out of a band, it was her birthday, and she said, I've got a spare ticket. Basically, no one else would go to the gig. Do you want to come? And it was Oh, Pink wow. Floyd. Oh, awesome. And I, and I, yeah, and I went, oh, look, it's not really my thing. I'm already into them. And she said, well, just come along and rock my world. It was the one with yeah. the big flying pig and yeah. all the lasers and that whole thing. Yep. And it was by far one of the most amazing spectacles, both from a music sense, Dave Gilmore's sense of terms of being a front man and leading it. Mm. Special effects, lasers. It was just, it was an absolute mind spin, a sensory overload. And yep. I walked away fan. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, let's not get distracted here. We're all about Mojo, but favourite song? Oh, Comfortably Numb. Really? Have a cigar for me. I love a, have a cigar. Or run. Run like hell. As we should be with this show. We should. The Mojo Radio Show. So, guys, welcome to the show. And as Robbo alluded to in the introduction, this show is about time. Uh, we're going to get to our special guest who is a world-acclaimed expert in time and our view, probably the psychology of time is the thing that we most want to dig into today, which I think is something which will impact all of us in and out of work. Before we do that, uh, the mailbag came in today. Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. In the mailbag was a book called The Strength Switch from our good friend, Dr. Lee Waters. And the book is about the new science of strength-based parenting, how it can help your child and teen to flourish. What a top, what a top topic. Yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? So that's arrived in the mail. So what I did is I got on to Dr. Lee, because Dr. Lee actually was one of our highest, in our top three highest rating shows of all time. Lee is going to be on the show in a couple of weeks' time to go through the book and also catch up with the latest in neuroscience behind, I guess, not even just being a great parent, but also just being great overall, being a yeah. greaterist. So there you go. So that's, uh, that came in the mailbag. Awesome. Uh, now, listen, a little bit of housekeeping before we get to our interview today. I know you've fallen out of love with Corona, but you've got to do something because the fridge is empty. Well, <laughs> we don't have any sponsors on the show, sadly. No, and never have, never will, probably. We try and do the right thing and we try and support the people who don't support us. <laughs> but we uh, we started a new campaign. Anybody who heard last week's show, which was a ripper, uh, we are starting a new campaign for our, our new good friends at Dosecki. We don't, it's, it's fair to say, we don't always drink beer. But no, when we do, we drink Dosecki. Mm. In fact, right now we prefer anything because our fridge is empty. <laughs> However, we are for, we are very thirsty, our friends. So uh, if you're listening out there, Doseki, we love you. Yes. And we are lobbying to be hashtag the most interesting men in podcasting. It obviously isn't working and we're obviously not right now because nothing's turned up. But anyway, look, it's a test. It's just a test in a marketing sense to see 
half hour our audience stretches, whether we know somebody, whether it's a Kevin, the Kevin Bacon of Doseki, the Kevin Bacon six degrees separated from Doseki. It's a test. It's just, it's just a beater. And we don't need cash. We don't want anything. We don't want cash. We just want beer. I mean, we, we're actually doing society a favour because we're actually testing whether a beer economy is actually a feasible thing, right? That's the country economy. A country economy. There you go. Just tuning in, we are going to kick ass. Supreme, the Mojo Radio Show. So let's get on to our guest for this week. Our guest is Lauren Vanderkam. I came across that I came across Lauren some months back when the first instance where I heard Lauren talk and was very interested in her in her psychological approach to time and productivity was on another podcast called The Good Life Project with Jonathan Fields. Wonderful interview, really enjoyed hearing Laura. And she said two or three things which made me stop the car and write down the headings to where she was talking about with the psychology behind getting stuff done and how we think about time. And then quite by chance, I was reading a book called The Productivity Project by Chris Bailey, which I quite enjoyed. And Laura was in there. There's a couple of points that Chris had obviously interviewed and spoken with Laura, made it into the book. So then I started doing some research through a wonderful TED Talk that Laura did. I was sold, thought, what a great guest to have on the program. But then I thought, well, kind of, you're in books, you're on podcasts, you've done a great TED Talk, pretty popular, what are the chances? But true to what Laura talks about, the people who are the busiest have the most time to free up. So thankfully, Laura has got the time for us today on the Mojo Radio Show. Laura, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. When Let's start off at the start. When people ask you what you do on a given day to day, what do you say? Well, I think of myself as a writer and I try to spend some quantity of time each day writing, uh, working on my books, on my blog. Um, I do a fair amount of speaking about the subject of time management as well. So sometimes I'm, I'm traveling to different places to talk with different audiences. And a mum of four. And a mum of four, yes, there's that too. <laughs> in, in my spare time. <laughs> Which is, but that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's important to qualify that right from the start because I, as we said before we started recording, I came across you on Jonathan Field's podcast talking about time and how we use it in our perception of time. And then I read about it in a book by Chris Bailey on productivity. But then when you look at, and it's all very well for people to say, well, that's all fine. A lot of people who write on it as single or they're in a relationship and their work is their primary thing. But when I hear somebody who is doing what you do, writing for who you write for, and you have four children, it's a lot of cred. <laughs> Yes, well, I didn't have four children to be a better expert on productivity, but it has proved to be helpful for convincing people I might know what I'm talking about. You are so committed, honey. We're having four children. I'll thank the children for that, for, for helping on that personal bonding front. I've seen and heard and read a lot of your stuff, and I just want to start at our approach to saving time. In your mind, your theory is that we have a backwards. Why, why is that? Well, if you read a lot of time management literature, which I kind of do as a, a occupational hazard, I mean, a lot of it is focused on saving little bits of time on everyday activities. Uh, and the idea is that if magically you spend two minutes fewer in the coffee shop line and one minute less on an email here and there, and then maybe three minutes less getting dressed, like, you'll suddenly have the life you want. 
And I don't think that is actually the case. I think that we don't build the life we want by saving time. We build the lives we want, and then time saves itself. Um, it is so much more effective to focus on the things we want to spend more time doing, commit to putting those into our lives first, and then funny thing happens. If you've got a project you are deeply absorbed in at work, like you naturally spend less time answering those stupid emails that don't require a response. It's not that you came up with some brilliant hack to spend less time on each email. It's that you don't want to spend time on it. And so you don't because you have something better you want to do. See, that's the bit that is dysfunctional for me because I agree with what you're saying, but why, why do we get sucked into this vortex of useless media, social emails, sitting in meetings that have been scheduled for an hour and we're done in 43 minutes, but we sit there and go, so what else is going on? Why, why are we, if we know it, why are we sucked into that vortex? Um, I think it's a couple of things. Is one is people have not actually internalized the preciousness of time, right? That it is, when it's gone, it is gone. You are never getting those 17 minutes you are sitting there that you're not doing anything in the meeting back. Like it's, it's gone into the past all the money in the world cannot buy you a second more when it is, once it is gone. Um, so there's that. I think it's also that time keeps passing, whether we think about how we are spending it or not. So it's very easy to spend mindlessly. And in particular, it's easy to spend it on easy stuff. I mean, the email is right in front of you. Uh, deleting each email feels like you did something like, look at me. I, I don't know if I'm changing the world or not, but I know for sure that I got my inbox down from 120 to 110. So yay. Right. Uh, that's a measurable thing. We love measurable things. Uh, and, and social media and TV and things like that. I mean, it's also, it's, it's pretty fun. It's uh, easy to do. Like you don't need childcare. You don't need to plan ahead. Like you, you don't have to call anyone and risk them not wanting to talk with you. I mean, it's just, so easy to do. And so we overinvest in those things in our lives and we underinvest in things that would in fact be a lot more fun if we did them, um, but take work. And the idea that it takes work to have fun is enough to sort of turn people off to it. So it's like, well, it'd be great to have a dinner party, but boy, then I got to invite all these people. I got to cook for them. They'll come over. It's going to happen at a certain time. Like I got to clean the house. It'd be awesome once it happens. You're going to have so much fun there and enjoy the time with your friends, but that stuff that it takes to make it happen is often enough of an obstacle that people are like, well, I'll just look at other friends on Facebook, and even if they're not my real friends, I'll spend my evening doing that instead. So you've, you've specialised in time, as we've said. When you look at time itself and you're working with a myriad of successful people or people who aspire to be successful, what's the biggest misconception we have about time itself? Well, I think what often happens is we don't actually know where our time is going. Um, there are various psychological things with the human brain that causes us to overestimate some things, underestimate other things. Um, we tend to overestimate things that we don't wish to do. So if you ask people how long they spend washing dishes, like the number is going to be far, far higher than the amount of minutes they actually spend washing dishes. It's just that nobody likes washing dishes. So it's, it's going to feel like it takes more time than it actually does. Um, we underestimate the things we do want to do. We underestimate leisure time. Uh, when we have leisure time, we're telling us ourselves a story that we don't have any leisure time. So people will show me a time log that they've kept and they'll have something like massage on it. And I'm like, oh, that's great that you mentioned it. They're like, well, that never happens. I'm like, well, clearly it did happen. <laughs> I mean, maybe in your story, 
it never happens, but uh, it, it did. So let's let's figure out a different story here. Um, so I, I think there's just uh, the stories we tell ourselves. Um, we tend to overestimate how much we work, uh, and and you know it's when we actually know the numbers, then then life often looks very different than the perception we we have. If it's about knowing the numbers. Talk me through the comment you made before about if we build the lives we want, then time saves itself. If I know the numbers, how do I go about then building the life that I think I want? Because it's it's probably fair to say people, a lot of people think they are, but then if they did the numbers, they're not. What have you noticed or what have you seen with the successful people that you've observed or you've interviewed? How do we... How do we go about building that that life of utopia? Well, I don't know if utopia is ever possible in in this world, but I think we can get a lot closer to it. Um, and one of it is just being reflective about the time and say, well, what did I do that was great today? Like if, as I look over how I spent my time, what what worked for me? What was awesome? And then we can celebrate that. That's good. We should we should be happy about that. Um, what do I want to spend more time doing? That question uh, and, and looking to say, well, what are the ways that I can spend more time on those things? Maybe if I carve out some time earlier in the day to do it instead of waiting to see what time is left over, then I I can devote more of my best hours to these things I want to do more of. And then, you know, what can I spend less time doing? Are are there ways that I could ignore it or or minimize it or delegate it to somebody? And there's there's all kinds of ways to get things off your plate if you want to get rid of them. Because it seems that the the drive at the moment goes back to something you said at the top of the show. You talked about carving out two minutes here in the coffee line or five minutes in between television shows to, to do something. It seems it's about saving time, but there's not as much emphasis about using time. And I've heard you say that when you interviewed busy people, the one thing you noticed was they weren't busy. How does all that come together? Well, many of the successful, most successful people I've interviewed have been shockingly not busy um, to the point where we have these funny email exchanges where I'm like, I, I promise I will only take 15 minutes of your time. Where can you squeeze me in? And I'll get an email back that'd be like, well, Wednesday's completely open for me. So why don't you name a time that works for you? <laughs> And what on earth? <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> and, but the truth is, is that, that they have gotten rid of anything that they don't want to do. They've left Wednesday open for the things that they do want to do. And once they have decided that they want to speak to me, they will make that happen during that time. And, and they don't want to be rushed. And so they sort of have whatever time is available. And, and there's obviously things you have to do to make this happen. In many cases, these people have whole support systems that are then enabling this. And so we shouldn't, under, you know, that's that's not not a small point here. Um, that you can be a lot less worried about emergencies if you have a fantastic uh, executive assistant who deals with all that when it comes in, and and that's something that people might consider. You know, if they're within the realm of possibility for you. But that said. Um, it's really about being mindful of what you wish to spend your time on and being pretty ruthless about getting rid of the things that you don't wish to spend your time on that you don't think are important. Um, a very different mindset. They're, they're not accepting meeting invitations just because it's the cool place to be, right? Like, ooh, it looks like an important meeting. I should be there. Well, why? I mean, if somebody else can go and, and represent you there, well, why would you go? I, I mean, it's just that sort of thing, uh, that they have a very different mindset about Filling time does not mean you are important. It just means you've managed to fill time 
which is actually not that hard to do. Just on that, I heard you speak with Jonathan Fields about successful people and how they have this room in their diary to get stuff done that's important to them. And one of the things you talked about, which I, I actually, it really sort of sat me down to, to think about it, is they said that the successful people have the best people around them who they can delegate to and know that person will just get it done. No problems, just get it done. And what it made me think about is that we probably need to do an audit of who we have around us that we can throw things to in a permanent or semi-permanent or contracted basis to say, do we have the best person that we can give it to? And I remember back when I started learning about investing and stuff, Robert Kiyosaki said one of the best from Rich Dad Poor Dad, one of the best investments you can make is a killer accountant. <laughs> and although it may cost you more in the long run, it'll be it'll way pay for itself. And it just changed my whole thinking about that. And I just wonder today whether we don't set our bar high enough in terms of valuing time. And in order to make the most of our time, perhaps we need to really evaluate whether we have the right people around us. Do you think that's a fair fair comment? I think it's definitely important to have the right people around you. I mean, that's not an excuse. Um, if you, for whatever reason, inherited a group of people that you have to deal with, um, for, for just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, well, I don't, I can't get anything done because look at the people around me. I mean, I think there's a lot we can do individually, uh, to, to create better situations than we may currently be in, even if everyone else is working at cross purposes. But that said, I, I really do think that it's important. And I, I see this in my own life all the time. Obviously, I have fabulous people who work with me professionally, and I, I made a point of that too. But I also do at on the home front too. I've um, had a number of people ask me like, your, your child care is fantastic. Like your, your sitters are the best we have ever seen. Um, and you keep them for a long time. And I'm like, well, okay, I pay them a lot. So that's one thing. Um, so I, I highly recommend that as, a, as an approach. Um, but, but it's also trying to, um, you know, treat people as well as possible. And, and then also hiring people who are going to um, reflect that back to you, who, who are worth paying the extra amount to and, and not trying to um, get the, the cheapest you could possibly do. And, and, and so because of that, I've, I feel like in some ways I've been very lucky. Like I, I don't have childcare emergencies. I just don't. And, and other people do. And they're like, well, how does that happen? I'm like, well, this is, this is how I've, I've structured it. And um, because I have incredibly good people uh, who, are, who are willing to stick with me and who love my children, but who are also very professional about it too. So do you, are you one of these people who get up at the crack of dawn to do some of your own work before the house stirs? Like how do you, with all the successful people you've seen, the writing for who you've written for the successful books. I mean, you've you've seen and heard a lot of stories and anecdotes about time and hacks and everything else. How do you set up your morning? Having four kids, life goes on as normal. What's the first hour or so of your day look like? Well, so one thing to keep in mind here is that there's different phases of life. And if you have extremely young children, 
your your mornings are not your own in a way that they will be in other phases of your life. And my youngest child, uh, he likes to do great things before breakfast. And unfortunately, he can't do them on his own. So he's kind of roping one of his parents every morning into this early morning routine of his. Uh, he's often up around 530 in the morning, which is not a time I would choose to be up on my own. Um, so we're having to deal with that right now. So I guess it's quality time with him is, is one way to look at it, but he will grow up. My older children can, can sleep easily until seven in the morning. They often sleep until I wake them up for school. So in a couple of years, he'll be there too. And, and then I hope to get back to a routine of getting up, um, running outside. If, um, if my husband's home with the kids, I can, I can go run out in our neighborhood for a while. If he's not, I use the treadmill. Um, and then get up and work on a high priority project for an hour or so, then, you know, with a good cup of coffee and then, then stir the family, have family breakfast together, get them off to school and then, and then start sort of the normal day. So in, in Laura's day, is exercise a non-negotiable? It is. I, Mm. um, can say that I run every day. So that's seven days a week. Um, I don't have to run much. I, my minimum is I have to do at least a mile a day. And I can do that in 10 minutes. So, you know, it's really just saying I have to exercise at least 10 minutes a day. And by putting it that low, I don't really feel any resistance to it. It's not like 10 minutes is a huge ask. But by saying I'm going to do that every day, it changes the conversation I have with myself from am I going to run today to when am I going to run today. And I think that's a productive conversation because it's just logistics then. Well, when can I fit it in? And, and then I make it happen. There's gold there. There's gold on that there treadmill. Nike gold. (laughs) Adidas gold. (laughs) Mizuna. Mizuna gold. That's right. I'm interested just to take you back for a second. You mentioned that you don't normally rise at 5.30. Um, a lot of people, and, and you know, everybody's different, but a lot of people we've spoken to tend to use the early mornings to do those things that they don't, they can't fit into their schedule during the day. Do you use the other end of the day more in that case? Do you, do you sort of fill up your evenings with bits and pieces um, or how do you work with that? No, not so much. I mean, I feel like I do have time during the day for the things that I want to do generally. Um, and part of that is, is working for myself, uh, that I don't have, you know, coworkers who are filling up my schedule with meetings and and a boss who demands I be in an office at a certain time. Um, and, and so because of that, it's not as necessary for me to use the early mornings um, as it might be for other people. I mean, I often work out, say, in the middle of the afternoon. That's a time that tends to work for me. I'd need a break anyway. It's when many people start to fade and you know need that extra cup of coffee. And so instead of the coffee, I go for a run. Um, but obviously, that doesn't work in a lot of offices. So the reason that mornings are, are really good for many people is that it is time they can have for themselves before everybody else wants a piece of them. Um, you get to work and every, your coworkers are demanding things, your boss is demanding things, your clients are demanding things. Um, you come home from work, your kids want stuff, your spouse wants stuff. The morning is, is a time you can often have to yourself. And, and so that makes it a great time for exercise, but it could also be great for say meditation, or if you want to write that novel, you get up and work on it. Um, maybe it is spending quality time with your family, I mean, whatever it is, but, but morning can be a great time for anything that life has a way of crowding out. Quality time hustling the kids out the door to the school bus. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be. I mean, and this, and this is an important point here because a lot of times when when parents wind up keeping track of their time, 
they find that they are spending more time with their children than they think they are. Mm. I found that a lot of working parents have been sort of telling themselves this story of like, I never see my kids. I have a full-time job. Ergo, I must never see my kids, right? But when they look at their time, they realize that their kids are up reasonably early and so are they. Um, and so that's morning time that they could have together. It's just that everyone's so focused about on getting out the door that they don't realize how much time is passing before they get out the door. And, you know, I mean, it could be two hours, it could be more. And, and it, like, if your kids are up at six and you leave for work at eight, that's two hours and you don't need all of it to get dressed. I mean, like, presumably you could use some of that time more mindfully for doing things like playing games or reading stories or, you know, having a relaxed family breakfast. It's just that you need to think about that time being there and ask how you would like to use it. I think that's a key point. And I saw, correct me here, Laura, but I saw you on, was it CBS in America? You did one of the morning shows, I think, on sort of running a household and time and being a mum. Uh being a parent. Yeah, right? I had a couple of, um, I, um, I was on, I think the Today Show was the one that was yeah. most recent about, you know, sharing tips on, on mornings and, and getting out the door and such like that. And just back to what Robert was saying, there were two things that really I loved out of that interview. The first one was you said you have, I think you call it a wet room, we call it a boot room, where it's the last room where everybody comes and goes from it. So all the boots and jackets and beanies and whatever else is in that room and you've got that set in such a way so when the kids go through it everything is in that room and the other thing that I loved was you said that you almost incentivize the kids to say when you are dressed and ready for school then you've got playtime and you can have the playtime and you said in the interview they almost race to get ready because they know there's something at the end of the end of the the, the light at the end of the tunnel, and it just goes back to what you were saying: is that perhaps we just don't put enough time into thinking. Well, we've got to get the kids out the door, create lunches, but you'd like to have some me time. I like the way that you've got tangible things you've done that make use of the time, but also the kids kind of they like it, they dig it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, if you get ready on time, you've got time to play. If you don't get ready on time, you don't have time to play. So, you know, your choice. But uh, one way or the other, we're getting out the door for the bus at 8.30 in the morning. So um, it might behoove you to get yourself dressed and brush your teeth and all that. And I, I don't mean to imply that it's a perfect system. I mean, certainly many mornings I'm yeah. hustling everyone out the door and I notice that somebody's breath still smells because they elected to miss the uh, teeth brushing <laughs> stage in, in the getting ready routine. Yeah. Um, but you know, at, at least usually their shoes are in one place, so they're not missing their shoes. I, I will say that that system at least works pretty well. Yeah, I had an. It's, you, you reminded me. I had an interesting conversation with my 11 year old on the weekend. We were doing the washing, and I said, "There's none of your underwear in here. Where, where's all your dirty underwear?" <laughs> Turned yes, out that he wore the same the pair of underwear that. for the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but productivity. The thing is, productivity. I mean, exactly. Now that you- now that you know that it, he's he's done that and the world didn't end, I mean, That's on right. some level, I, you know, people um, can can spend a lot of time on things like laundry, and clearly, you found that it doesn't actually matter to him. No, that's <laughs> right. It's not not high on his list of priorities, right? <laughs> so maybe it needs to get done less often. I mean, probably he should change his underwear. But on the other hand, it's uh, yeah. you know, if it, the laundry goes another day, it's probably okay. Remember that old saying your mother used to have? You know, what if you get hit by a bus? It's like, well, you know. You didn't get hit by a bus, so it's okay. It's okay. And <laughs> if, if they're there in the emergency room talking about your dirty underwear, then... I yeah, guess. then you can't be too bad, right? Yeah, that's, cool. yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly. Then you're probably not that bad off. 
It's half time on the Mojo Show. And time to pause for a cause. I'm Cody Coleman, and a cause I really care about is Crestbridge. They aim to match students from low-income households with top universities and provide them with full financial aid so that they can be successful. If you want to learn more or donate, look up questbridge.org. The Mojo Radio Show. So, Laura, where do you build your deep work or your true focus time into your day? And I've, I've seen you write about focus. And to me, I know Cal Newport, who wrote Deep Work, has recently said on a few shows, I've heard him on, that, that focus is the IQ of the future. Where is that time for you? Because you do, we all have things going on, but you are a prolific writer of books and blogs and obviously doing interviews. Where's that time where Laura can sit and focus and do your own deep work and ponder? Well, I tend to have my sort of work hour mornings uh, carved out for that. As much as possible, I try to schedule phone calls and things like that in my afternoon. Um, because that's a time when I have a little bit less energy. And so talking with people can, you know, it's, it's just different sort of work. I don't need to be quite as focused as I do when I am writing a draft of something or doing intense editing or something. My older kids get on the bus, um, by 8.40. We go out the door around 8.30. They're gone by 8.40. Um, so I come back to my desk by around you know, 8.40, 8.45. I'm there at my desk. And then I use that time till noon as much as possible to straight through write. Um, and, and by having those three hours in the morning, I can get quite a bit done. Uh, it's, it's surprising to me sometimes how much I can write in that amount of time. Do you use like a Pomodoro method or is there a particular method that you write when you sit down to write? How do you approach the blank page? Is there a a system, a process, a means by which you go through to create? Um, not so much, I guess. Um, (laughs) I, I tend to, you know, for, for anything I'm writing, I tend to think, well, what is, what is my point here? Like, what is my, my thesis statement or my main idea and if I've got that, um, you know, I kind of write that down and, and then sort of get into that from, from the beginning and, and then, you know, do the supporting arguments and evidence and, and scenes or whatever I'm doing after that. Um, so it's not so much that I'm creating an outline, but I, I, I have roughly an idea of where things go. And once I have the thesis, I know what needs to go before it, um, what needs to go after it to, to support it. Um, a lot of persuasive writing does tend to follow a certain format. So um, that's, that's pretty straightforward. Obviously, writing things like fiction is a little bit different. But uh, even that, it's, it's kind of just about getting it down. I am perfectly okay with having bad first drafts. Um, it's very rough. And then I can go back and make them better. But once it's there, it is so much easier to make something that exists into something better than turn nothing into something. So as soon as you got something there, you're, you're great. Like you, you've, you've conquered that first mountain and, and the rest is kind of downhill from there. So you'll do like a three hour stint or will you break it up into ride for half an hour, go to the kitchen, make a coffee, write for half an hour, go outside, look at the trees. There's not an exact amount of time that I write, but I am like drinking a lot of coffee in the morning. So I'm probably like going to the bathroom every hour anyway. So it's like, there's a natural break in, in the, you know, in the morning. I I wouldn't say I'm writing for three hours straight. I'm definitely getting up from my desk at some point in there. Now you just mentioned energy. And in this interview I saw in America, one of the breakfast shows, you gave these tips, which you've covered. When it came out and went back to the studio, one of the girls in the studio said, quote, I've got plenty of time. 
I just don't have the energy. <laughs> and I'm just curious, and this is sort of a, follows on from what we talked about with exercise and going for a run and having coffee breaks and so on. But anecdotally, you talk about the successful people you've looked at. And I'm just wondering, is there an obvious link between how they manage energy and how they use their time? Like, is that something that was prevalent in your findings? Yeah, well, I mean, so one thing I would say about that morning show, that was that was Savannah Guthrie, who is the host of the Today Show. And she's an incredibly high energy person. She was also newly pregnant at the time she said that. <laughs> so <laughs> she had for having no energy whatsoever. I mean, she was still dragging herself to her job, like a, a newly pregnant. So I mean, let's, let's give her a break there on, on her, her energy levels. Um, but... I, I think that yes, managing your energy is is incredibly important because not all hours are equal from that perspective. Um, I mean, an hour is always an hour, but what you can get done in an hour is very different depending on what sort of mood you are in. And so, really, when it comes to productivity, what I find that people should do is match the work that requires that their most energy to the time when they are most able to do it. Um, so matching your, your toughest work or your most important work to the time when you have the most energy. For most people, if you sort of look at tracking energy through the day, um, 8 a.m. is kind of when you're at it. <laughs> that's like game time. A lot of people are really ready to go then. Uh, so that's a great time for cranking stuff out. Mid-afternoon, pretty low on most people. So that's a good time for building in a break into your life because if you don't build in a real break uh, into your day, you'll probably wind up taking some sort of fake break that involves like a 45-minute social media rabbit hole uh, where you're looking at those photos of people you didn't like in high school and and losing all kinds of time to that. Um, So it would be better to schedule in a real break, um, maybe go outside or even just shift gears on what kind of work you're doing. So if you've been meeting with people all day, like go for a walking meeting or something, or, um, you've been, you know, working quietly. Maybe it's time to have more conversational stuff, like grab a, grab a work friend. You want to shoot some ideas off of and go get a cup of tea together. I mean, those, these are things you can do to manage your energy, just doing something differently so that you recharge and then can, can go back and focus for the rest of the day. On the back of that, I'm, I'm interested to ask you, how do you work your calendar? Uh, do you, I guess, I guess I have two questions. Do you break it down into grids, like 15 minute, 10 minute, five minute grids, half hour grids? And are you, and the other question I have is, are you stringent with that? Like if you're writing for your three hours and you find you're on a flow, will you stick with it for three and a half, four hours? Um, or are you rigid with the, okay, my three hours is up. I'll scribble down a few notes for my ideas and I'll get to that next time. How, how do you work with your calendar? I'm, I'm not I'm not rigid at all. And and that's one of the other blessings of working for myself in a home office is that nobody cares, right? You know, it's yeah. like I if I want to keep going, I keep going. Um and that's a reason I actually try to schedule fewer calls some days. I'll, I'll some well, my sort of goal is to get everything scheduled in like one afternoon of everyone I need to talk to for a week. And so then the rest of the time is open and I can choose whatever I want to do within that that time. Um, that doesn't happen as much as I'd like it to, but, but it, I aim for it. Um, and, and so, no, I'm not rigid about it at all. As for tracking my time, I, I do that in half hour blocks. Um, after the fact, I, I look a couple times a day, I go to the spreadsheet I keep of my time. Um, and I fill in what I've done for the past few hours and then I'll come back to it a couple hours later and fill in what I've done for the last half couple hours. And that, those are in half hour blocks. I find that's a 
small enough unit of time that it gives detail about my life, but it's long enough that I'm not getting obsessed about the details. So you fill your calendar in in, in reverse sometimes. Is that is that what you're saying? So you, yeah, you do- well, no, I mean, so I have a calendar that I. It's an interesting thing. So yeah, I log time that I've spent, so I wow. know where the time has gone. Okay, I and have the- a very low tech paper calendar that I put my appointments on. I mean, people send me electronic appointments and I hit accept or whatever, but I have no idea where that goes. There's no electronic <laughs> calendar for me that I'm following. It's all on the paper stuff. Um, so. so do you then reference back to that at the end of the week and sort of go, well, I could have saved time here. Is that, is that the reason for filling it in in reverse or is that just to keep a track of what you actually just did that to keep, week? To keep a track um, because I'm obsessed with time. Yeah, <laughs> and I love sure. to see where it goes. I've, yeah. I've used those time logs to write about my life um, just to say, well, here's something I've seen, but, but over the time, yes, it does prove very helpful for me to see that, Oh, I'm actually spending quite a bit of time reading, but all the stuff I'm reading is like horrible and it's just useless magazine fluff and I should be reading better books. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, well I could use that time for reading. So let me decide to read better stuff with that time and be a little bit more intentional uh, about those hours I'm devoting to reading. Impressive Gary. I'm just going to take you back a little, Laura, you said before you were talking about working in hours and I saw one of your thoughts of the day was while we think of our lives in grand abstractions, a life is actually lived in hours. Is that something you notice as a commonality in people who seem to have more time and are most productive is that they live their lives in hours as opposed to living it in the grand abstractions? Well, I think that life, I mean, because life is lived in hours, you need to be sort of thinking about, am I spending my hours in ways that are meaningful or enjoyable to me and the people I care about? And, and, and this is where there winds up being these gaps in sort of people's experience of life and sort of the grand story of their lives, because you'd be like, oh, well, you know, I have a, a great family and I have a great job and therefore I should be happy. But then you look at how you're actually spending your hours and you're spending too much time in a bad commutes and you get to work and you're in these boring meetings, like you believe in your organization's mission, but you spend your entire day in, in meetings that seem like, you know, pointless and infighting and all that. And you come home and the kids are yelling and you got to, you know, deal with them and, you know, march them into bed. And, and, and so the experience of how you're actually spending your hours is not that pleasant. And, and so you're like, well, my life sounds good on paper, but I, why am I not happy? And, and I think it's, it's because of that gap. And, and so I encourage people to actually focus on, well, what are you doing with your hours and how can you spend more of those hours on things that you actually would enjoy? And some of that's just about being intentional about and saying, well, when I am home with the kids in the evening, what's something fun we could do? Maybe we go for a walk after dinner and go to a park instead of just sitting here staring at each other. Or, you know, maybe I've picked out, I've gone to the library and picked out some books we'd actually enjoy reading as opposed to the same old stories we still have. Yeah. And so so just having a little bit of intention can go a long way toward improving the experience of hours. You talked about managing your calendar and I saw you write or speak about um, the phrase you used was progress is motivational. And you spoke of doing a to-done list. So we all write to-do lists, but you have talked about a to-done list. Is that something that you still do as part of your day, Laura? Well, 
I, I will admit that I've written things on my to-do list after I've done them just to have the satisfaction of crossing them off. <laughs> 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 We've all done that, we, haven't we? We all do that. Yeah. Cross this off. Look at how productive I am. It's kind of funny to, to do that. But I, I do like to have a sense of progress. And the more lines I have of stuff crossed off, the, the better I feel. And I, I suspect lots of people are like that. Um, that we want to celebrate what we've done. And so why not work with your temperament on that? Like say at the end of the day, well, what did I do? Yay. Look at me. Look at how wonderful this is. Now, what's great is if the things you intend to do in the day match up with the things that you wind up doing. Um, and obviously there's going to be other stuff you wind up doing that comes up that you didn't know about at the beginning of the day, but, but to making, making sure that the few things that are on the calendar that are on your to-do list at the beginning of the day are things that are crossed off at the end can be incredibly motivational. It makes you feel very productive. So uh, do what you can to make that happen. Keep your, your to-do lists uh, very short. But I guess that depends if the work you're doing is fulfilling. Because I suspect, there's a couple of things, I suspect that some people are getting through their day, getting stuff done, ticking off their to-do list, looking back at their to-done list and go, you know what? I didn't really get a lot out of that. I got the job done, but no one really cares. And so I suspect there's got to be a, going back to what you said before, a purpose and a fulfillment to it. And then the other thing I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is I spoke to a guy recently, he worked in conferences. And what we discovered was that he lives his life in the future all the time because he's either about to do a conference or worried about what's coming up or He's pitching for a big conference that could be a year away. So he's always living in the future, never really in the present moment, let alone looking at his to-done list. Are they, are they attributes or behaviours that you find that can really hinder people from making the most of their time? Um, so I think in terms of not liking what you're doing, obviously it happens a lot. And the thing is, I mean, we do spend a lot of our lives at work. We don't spend the majority of our hours at work, despite what people say. Um, we, most people do not spend the majority of their waking hours at work, but we spend a lot of time. And, and so just writing off that time as, as being, you know, necessary to live, it, it, it's, it's kind of sad. And I think that you don't necessarily have to find a different job, but just about any job can be crafted into a little bit different from what you're doing now so that maybe you can spend more time on the stuff that you would enjoy um, proposing new projects or say, oh, I'd like to work with these different people on something or here's an idea we haven't tried. I'd really like to do this. Or maybe I could spend half an hour, you know, a couple of days a week on this. What would you think of that? But just figure out if there's some way you could expand the amount of time that you spend on the cool stuff that can go a long way to making you feel like life is better. Now, obviously, maybe long-term, if, if you're truly miserable or there's you know, things about your organization that you really disagree with, you may need to find something else. But um, that you can also look at how you can improve what you're in at the moment as well. Um, you know, as for being constantly in the future, I, I, it really has to be a balance. I, there's nothing wrong with looking to the future. I, I would say a lot of people are, are sort of actually under- thinking about the future. That's why most people don't save enough for retirement because <laughs> they feel like the future will never happen. I mean, it'll, it, I'll never be 65. Like, I don't need to worry about that. Right. And it, it, so I think a lot of people are not thinking about the future at all. And that that's not good either. But of course you can't constantly think about the future either. You have to have a good balance between what's currently going on, what's going to go on in the future. And then maybe even think about what's gone on in the past. Uh, that's a good way to sort of, um, have more clues to like who you are now and what you might like to do in the future by thinking through what, what's gone. Uh, 
I am conscious of your time today. So uh, one final question for you. You wrote a story in Fast Company and the the premise to it, you said a, a diagnosis of any kind can completely upend our lives. And you did an article which was in reference to some cancer survivors and their view to time or the future or the lessons they'd taken from it. When you reflect on that story, Laura, and we talk about time, what were what were some of the key, I guess, most emotive or profound things that were said to you from someone who's placed in that position and their view on time? Well, I think what was interesting to me when you know I was interviewing a bunch of young survivors of cancer, so people who had gotten this diagnosis at a time when most people think they're truly invincible, um, and then to learn that actually you're not, <laughs> you, you are not. And they had to deal with that, that they did not know for a while if, if their time was incredibly limited, like if they were, were dying soon or if they were going to make it through. But even in the process of making it through, there's many unpleasant things you have to deal with. Um, and, and so those people had a, a – it changed the way they viewed time. Now, it did not always change the way they viewed time in the same way. Um, I think some people have that happen and – they say, okay, I've got to go for it. I got to do all these amazing things. I'm going to, you know, go climb mountains. I'm going to start businesses. Like time is so precious. I got to do all these amazing things with my life. Other people I interviewed were sort of like, you know what? I realized it doesn't really matter. And if I would be happy to sit on the couch and watch a TV show right now, that's what I'm going to do. Cause that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I'm you know, going to make myself happy because all we really have is our happiness. And so I was like, well, that's another way of looking at it as well. And, and so it doesn't change people in the same way necessarily, but I think it does change things. And, and it's, you know, something to think about because all of us, in fact, are dealing with limited time. None, none of our hours are, are limitless. And so we, we should probably keep that in mind that time, time is precious. Time is also plentiful. I mean, there's more than enough time for the things that we do want to do life, but they're in life, but there probably isn't enough time to waste on the things that we don't want to do as well. Laurel, you, another one of your thoughts of the day, and I really like this one. You said, I think you said at your retirement dinner, People won't talk about your pristine inbox or your packed schedule. They'll want to talk about what you've done. At that dinner party, what what would you like people to have known you've done? Like what's the thing that Laura is looking to do that others would say, that's tops? So what I'd love to have people say, and, and the lovely thing about my life is I actually get some of these emails now, is that people have read my books um, and said I have given them the confidence that they can build the lives they want in the time that they've got, um, that they had been telling themselves some sort of story like, I can't start a business because I'm a single parent, or I can't go back to school because I'm, you know, caring for um, other family members or I don't have time to, um, you know, take up this hobby that I've always wanted to do. And and then they, they read something I've written and they decide that that's, the story is wrong, that they can do these things. And they start and they're loving it. And then they write me and say, thank you. And I'm like, well, I didn't do the work, but <laughs> I'll, sure, I'll take the thanks. Um, and and, and I hope that those would be the stories people would be saying at, at 
I don't think I'm going to retire because I don't see any reason to. But, uh, you know, I hope that these would be the stories that people would tell at a celebration of my life is the effect that I had hopefully had positively on on other people's lives. Do you journal? As a a final note, do you, with collecting stories in your mind, because you're a prolific writer, you write a lot for magazines and books and articles and so on, do you, is is journaling part of your world? I do keep a journal. I mean, to some degree, the time log has become part of my journal um, because that shows what I've done hour by hour for my life. Uh, And my blog is also partly a journal. It's a very public one, so I'm very careful about what I share in it. Um, So so some of the more private thoughts are are kept in a a journal that I I do keep, but um, not as regularly as I did as when I was like 15 and, you know, needing all that teen angsty stuff somewhere to put it. But uh, now now it's it's still part of my life, just not as much as it once was. Now, uh, before I let you go, where people who want to learn more about you, where, where's the best place to send them, Laura? They can come visit my website, which is lauravandercam.com. That's just my name. And I blog, you know, four or five times a week there. My commenters are awesome. They are far nicer and more informed than most people on the internet. So it's a great comment section. Please, your listeners should come join in. I'd love to have them be part of the conversation. And just so people don't get caught up, it's V-A-N-D-E-R-K-A-M. Isn't that right? Correct. Yeah, I went looking for C-A-M on on Skype today and couldn't find you. So yeah, the K and the C, guys, (laughs) that's the only trick with that one. Yeah, so K-A-M as in Mary. That's the one. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being on the program. I I really like your work. There's a ton of great resources for anybody who goes in to visit you. There's also some really nice, and I'll put a link to a couple of the videos in the show notes on YouTube. But um, thanks for spending time with us, Laura. It's been a real treat to be able to meet you and talk with you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Mojo Radio Show. (laughs) We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. You know, I missed a big opportunity in that interview, didn't you? Which was? Well, an interview all about time management and we didn't do a nifty 90. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the irony, the irony of it. There you go. Oh, well, next time. You know why? Because you weren't organised. No, you're right. I'm not. you didn't have that down in terms of your day ahead. Mm. And if it was important to you, you would have put it on our agenda for that while we had Laura. Yeah, Call her. Get her on the phone right now. I haven't been organised for months. Let me tell you. The Mojo Radio Show. To finish out the show, you know how you talked about going back and thinking about the time when you were introduced to Pink Floyd? Yep. I remember at the same time I was living in Brisbane looking out the back window of my bedroom. You weren't looking out the back door? No, no, the back window. There's a guy called (laughs) Craig Parker introduced me to Bowie, Queen, Sex Pistols, the Ramones, and he also introduced me to Lou Reed. And he had a room, a bedroom that I could see from my bedroom. I could just see the glow. Mm. He had one of those blue lights. Mm. You remember those blue lights you put in the ceiling, like a fluoro blue light, and it made your whole room so anything with the reflective posters used to glow. And he had these, yeah, he had these really psychedelic posters which would glow. And he introduced me to Lou Reed, and I found a great blog, and it was Lou Reed and his partner in life, Laurie Anderson's Three Rules for Living Well, a short, and succinct life philosophy. It is short, it is succinct, and it's this week's lesson of rock. Let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Show's Lessons in Rock. Here's what he said. He said, I'm reminded of the three rules we came up with, rules to live by. 
and I'm just going to tell you what they are because they really come in handy. Because things happen so fast, it's always good to have a few like watchwords to fall back on. The first one is one, don't be afraid of anyone. Can you imagine living your life afraid of no one? Two, get a really good bullshit detector. (laughs) And three, three is be really, really tender. And with those three things, you don't need anything else. So with that said, let's play out a little bit of Lou Reed, your favourite track. We're out. Pedro lives out of the Wilshire Hotel. He looks out a window without glass. The walls are made of cardboard. Newspapers on his feet and his father beats him because he's too tired to beg. He's got nine brothers and sisters. They're brought up on their knees. It's hard to run when a coat hanger beats you on the thighs. Pedro dreams of being older and killing the old man, but that's a slim chance. He's going to the boulevard. He's going to end up on the dirty boulevard. He's going out to the dirty boulevard. He's going down to the dirty boulevard. Room costs $2,000 a month. You can believe it, man, it's true. Somewhere a landlord's laughing till he wets his pants. No one dreams of being a doctor or a lawyer or anything. They dream of dealing on the dirty boulevard. Give me your hungry, your tired, your poor, I'll piss on them. That's what the statue of bigotry says. Your poor huddled masses, let's club them to death and get it over with and just dump them on the boulevard. Get them out on the dirty boulevard. Going out to the dirty boulevard. They're going down on the dirty boulevard. Going out. Outside, it's a bright night. There's an opera at Lincoln Center. Movie stars arrive by limousine. The Cleaglides shoot up over the skyline of Manhattan, but the lights are out on the mean streets. A small kid stands by the Lincoln Tunnel. He's selling plastic roses for a buck. The traffic's backed up to 39th Street. The TV whores are calling the cops out for a suck. And back at the wheelchair, Pedro sits there dreaming. He's found a book on magic in a garbage can. He looks at the pictures and stares up at the cracked ceiling. Count of three says, I hope I can disappear and fly, fly away from this dirty boulevard. I want to fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly, 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 fly from the dirty boulevard. I want to fly away. I want to fly, fly, fly away. I want to fly, fly, fly away.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.